Hi, it's time to get intimate. So about four years ago, I started researching sex robots, which is a slightly strange topic for an academic. We aren't really encouraged to look at these kind of things involving uh, pleasure and sex. It doesn't attract much funding. But I find it really interesting. I'm not the first to work in this area. There have been people exploring the potentials of robots and intimacy for a long time. Um, the very first stories we have go way back, way back. If we think about it, we could think of Greek myth as being a precursor to talking about artificial humans. And this is Pandora, who was the first human created by the Greek gods. And she was given intelligence by a team of programmers. There's lots of other stories that come out of that time. Um, one of the earliest stories we have is about a woman who created a copy of her dead husband, who she took to bed with her. And so one of the earliest stories we have of an artificial lover is actually about a male artificial lover, which is not something that we see very often. These days we see very much sex robots that are aimed at, they're women and they're aimed at straight men. But this idea of the perfect artificial companion, we know from stories like Pygmalion, told by the Roman poet Ovid. And Pygmalion wasn't happy with normal women. He felt they were a bit of a letdown. So he created his own sculpture and he kissed her and brought her to life. And all through sci-fi, we have this trait, we have this trope running about this perfect woman that has been created by man, a man-made woman. And very often it goes wrong. So you have this amazing woman, but she's dangerous. She has an element of danger, and she often in the stories has some kind of uprising, fights against the man who has made her which is in some ways a story about women rising up against the patriarchy, one we see quite a lot of. The men tend to get upset when the women step outside their role. I like this picture because it reminds me of this, which is one of our earliest depictions of a gendered robot in science fiction. It's Maria. And I find this really interesting um, because even in Metropolis, Maria is gendered in a sexual way and that she takes on a, uh, she does an exotic dance, she takes on a role that is, has sexuality at the core of it and again is involved in an uprising. And we see it go on right the way through to films for the past few years. And Blade Runner 2049, um, lots, of, lots of women in that, not necessarily a particularly feminist film, the women's, women tend to inhabit roles, the, the perfect girlfriend, who is literally a, a holographic girlfriend. Or Her, which is a, a really wonderful film by Spike Jones, actually quite a, a creepy film in some ways, but the main character falls in love with his operating system. So on one hand, we have films like Blade Runner 2049, where this is very much an embodied version of the artificial lover. And then we have her where it's disembodied. We just have the AI. Still very obviously a woman that is portrayed because it's Scarlett Johansson's voice and she's kind of known for being beautiful and attractive. So when I was looking into all of this, I was intrigued as how far sex technology has come. This far. So... So representations, phallic representations of genitals, particularly of the penis, date back 28,000 years. These ones are much younger, they're 12,000 years old. And since then, we don't know if these were used as sex toys. No, we've no idea. But we know for sure that from 
ancient Greek onward, there were definitely sex toys in use, in particular in the form of dildos. We also know that people reportedly, a few people were having sex with statues as well. The evidence isn't quite as, um, as, as large for that, but it was rumored. So for thousands and thousands of years, people have been creating copies of the genitals and for certainly for several thousand years have been using them for pleasure. And somewhere along the way, this kind of thing turned into this kind of thing. These are some examples of sex toys that are out there today. This one in the top left, that's a product from Tenga. It's a masturbatory device. The one on the top right, it's a vibrator that can be shaped. It's the mystery vibe from, uh, crescendo from mystery vibe. You can bend it along one axis, and it has these six motors that you can program independently so you can decide what you respond to best. And it fits all types of bodies because it's shapeable. At the bottom is uh, a device called the Pulse by a British company called Hot Octopus. And it was designed particularly for people who had spinal cord disorders, spinal cord injuries, so that they would be able to reach orgasm when they weren't able to feel stimulation. And it can be used um, with a partner as well, because there are motors on both the inside and the outside. So somehow along the way, we've jumped from straightforward, the dildo, to the kind of abstracted sex tech that we have. And it's interesting that a lot of that jump, so we saw the first, the rise of the vibrator in the um, 19th century, um, the electromechanical vibrator was invented. And it wasn't invented to give hysterical women orgasms. That's a myth. There's no evidence of that. But it was, it was developed to, for pain relief. So you could use it as a muscle relaxer. You could hold it on the bit that was sore. Very, very quickly, it was adopted for sexual purposes. And so there was, it was advertised sort of knowingly that you could buy one of these, but never openly sold as a sex toy. It wasn't until about 1999, 2000, that Sex in the City was on TV, and there was an episode of Sex in the City where Charlotte bought a vibrator and became addicted to it. And it was quite moralistic, um, because the, the other characters wanted to stage an intervention to rescue her from her sex technology. They said it wasn't the, right, it wasn't the real thing, it wasn't as good as a real man. But the, the vibrator that they showed on the TV program was a rabbit vibrator. The rabbit vibrator doesn't look like genital replicas, it's been abstracted, it's been optimized, it has little ears on it that vibrate, it's much better at clitoral stimulation. And one of the reasons it took on this form was because of obscenity laws. So it came out of Japan where there were obscenity laws about creating things that looked like genitals. So they made them not look like genitals. They made them cute and give them different colors and different shapes. So because of a law against sex toys, we see a massive development in moving towards a really interesting design abstraction. So from toys to robots, right? an example of some of the robots we have in our life today, because every time I talk about sex robots, I want everyone to stop and think about what actual robots we have. We have surgery robots that can perform with the precision, if not better than the precision of humans, but they're guided by a human operator. We have military robots like bomb disposal robots, like drones. Uh, and we have the good old service robots, like robot vacuum cleaners. So there are many, many millions more of these than there are of these. And we have an emerging category of social robots. Let me see if I can just, no, let me see if I can play this video. This is, this is Pepper. Pepper is the first humanoid robot capable of recognizing the principal human emotions. He can adapt to any behavior and mood of his user. 
Use Pepper in hospitality care or retail as a new way of welcoming and amusing your customers. He can help you find the right product or show you the way into the hospital. Pleasant and likable, Pepper is much more than a robot. He is a genuine humanoid companion created to communicate with you in the most natural and intuitive way through his body movements and his voice. Suggestion, sir. Maybe you might want to buy some flowers. Pepper has numerous sensors and makes individual movements. Thanks to his face detection and built-in camera system, he can recognize any person in your customer's system and talk to them. Make your choice, please. I will order it for you. You can also personalize your robot by downloading the software applications that take your fancy. Learn, play, dance, and even chat in another language. Pepper adapts itself to you. Meet Pepper. I always think someone should redub that with sinister music and make it into a horror film. <laughs> so Pepper, Pepper is gendered in that film. The narrator is calling Pepper he. But the company that make Pepper, um, SoftBank and Altabar and Robots, deliberately left Pepper without a gender and said, you can decide for yourself. Um, Pepper's about four foot high, uh, made of this shiny white plastic, very smooth, big eyes. It helps when these robots have big eyes. It makes us feel protective towards them because they're cute. Those big eyes are cameras. Pepper is taking all of your emotional data. Pepper is a privacy nightmare. But people like Pepper. People find this cute and engaging, and they're prepared to overlook all the things like the fact that Pepper is there to sell you things. So we are starting to see this emergence of, of robots that we're expected to engage emotionally with. So a robot is simply just a machine that can automate certain actions, um, and they're already all around us. We have them in care settings as well, to a degree. They've been trialed. There's not really any in completely full use yet. But, well, we have telepresence machines. They're not quite robots. They're basically Skype on wheels, going around, letting doctors talk to patients in hospitals. There was a case recently about someone receiving a terminal diagnosis via one of these. We need to be really, really careful about how we use these things. Um, other examples, the telenoid one, Robert, that Robert is a Japanese robot that has been in production in, in, as a prototype but has never actually um, been made commercially available because it has a bit of a problem handling fragile skin and you don't really want a robot that can't handle fragile things to lift an old person. And then this is Paro that a lot of people may have seen before. Paro is a tiny little seal pup, really, really cute, um, makes little chirping noises. Paro was trialed in nursing homes, and the people there really bonded with Paro. It's a bit like having a pet, but without any of the looking after the pet required. It is very cute. The first time I met one of these, I was completely suckered by it. You know, I was like, oh, it's so cute. This is, oh, let's get Paro. I'm spoiling the surprise of the next slide. nursing home, Paro was so successful that the, uh, the residents in the nursing home neglected the dog, the real dog, in favour of the robot sale. So, okay, so we can get close to robots. How close can we get? Is it okay to get really close to Paro? Well, a few years ago, uh, there was lots of speculation about creating the first commercially available sex robot. So there have been a couple of really dodgy-looking prototypes out there. 
none of which ever made it to, to production. Um, and in, in 2016, I was co-chair of a conference about sex robots, and we had about 50 academic delegates there, and about 40 members of the press, because everyone was really, really excited. And we had to keep saying, no, we don't have any sex robots to show you. Um, this is an academic conference. Um, it's just people talking about boring legal stuff and technology. So anyway, we saw some, some headlines coming out of it. Um, this one I, I love because, you know, like the end of sex, right? As if we're never ever going to do, have sex again. The end of sex, men won't be able to tell the difference between a sex robot and a real woman, which I think is really unfair to the men. They are better than that. <laughs> and then this one, that just, there's so much wrong with this one. End of triple X rated porn online, these sex robots could make Westworld a reality. Okay, first of all, I, it's just not. <laughs> the idea of anyone stopping the juggernaut that is the online porn industry, it's just not going to happen. MindGeek would have a few things to say about that. The, I mean, they can't spell Westworld right either. It should be a lowercase w in the middle. Um, it's not terrifying. It's, I'll tell you why it's not terrifying. Because it's not believable. Because this, this is where we're at with sex robots today. That's it. So if men can't tell the difference, I'm really, really worried. <laughs> okay, let me introduce you to the prototypes that are out there in the world. Um, this one, this is Roxy triple X on the right here, on the, your left, my right. This is Roxy with the triple X. Roxy emerged at a trade show a few years ago. Um, too much laughter, unfortunately. And the person who created her, um, Douglas Hines, um, he's never, we've never seen a working version. He takes orders for them, but we've never ever seen a finished product out there in the world. He's also quite litigious, so I don't want him to sue me when I say that it's completely fake. Um, who knows? The one in, on this side, I'll move over again. This is Samantha. Samantha is a sex doll, and she has some sensors and vibrating motors in her body. I'm gendering her already. Uh, and she has an AI personality that changes her reactions to you as you interact with her. So she can become more flirtatious over time, more engaged over time, all this kind of thing. Now, about 25 models of Samantha have been made and privately custom-built and sold, but she's no longer in production. There's really only one company that's sort of out there ready to sell, which is the middle one. This is Harmony by a company called Abyss Creations, who also make sex dolls known as real dolls. Harmony is completely stationary from the neck down. She can't stand up unsupported. She can, however, move her head. She has an animatronic head, so she can blink and smile. And she also has an artificially intelligent personality. She's essentially quite a good chatbot. And there's a rather nice interface where you can mix what personality you want her to have. So she can be flirtatious or fun or friendly or serious. Her AI personality can be bought as a separate app for $20. You can have an AI girlfriend on your phone or tablet, Android only at the moment. So this is, oops, uh, so this is Harmony in more detail. Um, there's a, another version of her called Solana. They're essentially the same thing. So basically, the ultimate aim is that you will be able to buy a sex doll from Real Doll, and they will have sort of, you can interchange the head, is the idea. And here she is, just going to play her a little. She has a, she has a very soft-spoken Scottish accent. It's quite strange. Here she is. How are you today? Very well. I can't wait until we're alone. I've got a special surprise for you. Oh, yeah? 
I will not tell you yet. I will wait for the right moment. Okay. So that's Matt McMullen, he's the CEO of Abyss Creations. He came up with the, he's, been, he's a sculptor, he's been making these dolls for, for like years now, 15, 20 years. Um, he came up with wanting to make a sex robot because a lot of the people who buy the dolls wanted more interactivity. Um, so in my work, in my research, I've talked to, I've looked into who owns and buys sex dolls, I've talked to them. And it kind of falls into two camps as to who will want a sex robot. And there are the people who own sex dolls because they want companionship. And they buy into this idea, this lifestyle, where the doll represents another human. So people who treat it as if it is another human, who um, dress it, photograph it, take it out, all those sort of things. Some of those people, that's, you know, that's who they live with. They have doll or dolls and they live with them. Other people are in relationships uh, with humans and have the doll as well. And it's kind of a, almost like a hobby. And then there is the other group of people interested in sex robots who are the fetishists, who are interested because it is a robot. So a couple of competing groups. Oh, there we go. Okay, so you've seen, now I've now, you've now seen what the state of the art is in sex robots. So which is why I want, to know, I want to show you the headlines, because think of those robots when you read these headlines. Okay, so the first one, hacked sex robots could murder people, security expert warns. Okay, I don't know how unless it was holding a knife and you repeatedly fell on it. I mean, it's, I can't see, or it electrocuted you. I mean, there's, these, these things can't move on their own. They cancel up on their own. We're a long way off being killed by them, a very long way. Um, sex robot molested, destroyed at electronic show. Okay, when this came out, this headline came out, there was a lot of outcry. Oh, a sex robot has been attacked and molested. And I thought, that doesn't sound very real. So I looked into it, and it was Sergio Santos who created the Samantha robot that you've seen. And he took it to a trade show, the electronic show, and put it on display. And he said to people, you can touch it. Go ahead. Not sexually, just, you know, it's something new. So everyone came up and had a little poke. Um, and if you have any delicate object and you say to people they can touch it, yeah, it's, it's going to get damaged, it's going to break. So after thousands and thousands of people had had a go at poking and prodding this robot and giving it a squeeze, yeah, it got damaged. But it got reported as being sexually, sexual intent. Um, and that there had been some kind of molestation going on, and that's not the case at all. And in fact, Santos was so annoyed and upset by this that he's just stopped production. He, he got such a hard time in the media for it. And it was interesting, because he was genuinely working on a way that people could have reciprocal interaction with the sex robot. He was very interested in how we could factor in things like polite behavior and consent and things like that. Not that not that a robot requires consent right now, but you know, if we ever had sentient machines, we'd have to really think about that. And this last one, sex robots may literally fuck us to death. <laughs> um, but I, I, technically, they could. I mean, this is the <laughs> this comes from the the AI. Oh, like it's, it, it applies to any artificial intelligence, right? If we program it incorrectly, if we don't put in that clause to stop it properly, yeah. But that, that could be said for any AI, right? It's, it's the Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's the magic porridge pot. It keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. That's just more of a, a sign that we should look after our AI. Gizmodo knew that. They're, they're being tongue-in-cheek. Okay, there is, there is a dark side. Um, there's been, in the past couple of years, there's been a, a, a clampdown on the importation of childlike sex dolls. So in the UK... It's not illegal to own one because they haven't got a law for that, but it's illegal to import them. They have got a law for obscene material. And they've seized something like 230 of these in the past couple of years. And they've prosecuted people, and the people who are buying these have got pedophilic material, images of child abuse on their computers, and have been um, sentenced for this. So it is problematic. And we're not at the robot stage that we know of. We don't know if there are childlike sex robots out there. I would doubt it, given the state of the sex robot market and industry in general. There are definitely childlike dolls, though. And in the US in 2017, they introduced the Creeper Act, which was kind of 
knee-jerky, but they, they said basically we don't have a law against childlike sex dolls, so we're going to ban those, but while we're at it, we'll ban the robots. But they were making quite a lot of assumptions like because it leads to real-world abuse, and that's the thing. We don't have evidence to say that it does. None of this is particularly well-evidenced. Now, my initial reaction when I was researching this was to say, oh, I don't even want to, I don't even want to go there. But there have been some studies, and the University of Montreal looked at whether or not virtual reality could be used to see if sex offenders were rehabilitated. And there may be scope that a childlike sex robot could perhaps be used as a therapeutic measure or some kind of proxy that would stop abuse, but we don't know. And so because we don't know, we have to regulate, because this is a... a, a a kind of dynamic that replicates a real-world situation where vulnerable people are at risk. So the best thing we can do in this case is just stop and, and make sure that this doesn't happen. I don't know that we'll ever be able to find out if there would be therapeutic benefits because that's just a study that would not get ethical clearance. And because we don't know, we have to be cautious. Some more headlines around privacy, data privacy. So there have been a couple of smart toy sex hacks, smart sex toy hacks in the past few years. Um, sort of the most widely known one is WeVibe by a company called Standard Innovation. And they had a sex, smart sex toy, a vibrator, um, that you could connect. And it was sending back data to the manufacturer, which, you know, there's nothing unusual in that. That's a kind of a standard thing. It was sending back data like frequency of use, time of use, usage patterns, vaginal temperature. I mean, yeah, they were keeping an eye on things. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they hadn't anonymized the data. They had linked all that data to the email address that people have signed up to when they were using the app. So they settled out of court for millions of Canadian dollars. Another one that a sex toy secretly recorded audio of users' orgasms by accident. Kind of, kind of. Um, there was a, a toy that was being driven by sound in the ambient environment, and they hadn't properly deleted the files afterwards. Nobody really could have access to them. But again, it's these kind of things that are a bit worrying. Oh, yeah, there we go. This is the, the WeVibe one. Um, so, yeah, so this is personal information that wasn't being anonymized. And we know that any time we connect online, we're at risk of our data being shared, stolen. The problem is, is that with sexual data, it's really, really risky. This is data that could get people killed in some places. This is data that can be used to blackmail. This is data that could fall into the wrong hands. So it's quite worrying. And on that note, I'm going to just shout out to people who are working on privacy in this area. So we have the really wonderfully named Internet of Dongs project um, by Brad Haynes, known as Renderman. Um, he's been, he set up a, an initiative to make sure that um, sex toys can be checked for vulnerabilities so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. It's a really interesting project. He's recently got some funding from Pornhub for that. Um, Kyle Mishulis. Kyle is one of the earliest people working in teledildonics. He's brilliant. Um, he has this, this, this sort of initiative called buttplug.io. Uh, it's not just butt plugs. It covers all sex toys. He picked that one because it's kind of a fits all bodies. Um, it's an open source standards um, and software project for controlling sex tech hardware. So he's trying to take away the the marketization, that he's trying to democratize the, share, the platforms that everyone uses. And then Sarah Jamie Lewis, who is a, a privacy advocate um, and open source advocate, and she did a, a wonderful thing where she connected a vibrator to Tor um, for 100% encrypted peer-to-peer cybersex. So she said, let's do this completely anonymously so no one can have your data. She's doing some really cool stuff too. Okay, so there are other problems that don't fall under 
the damage that sex robots might do to society. For example, we know we live in a particularly misogynistic world when it comes to tech. We know that Silicon Valley has a problem with women. This year at the Consumer Electronics Show, this robotic vibrator by Laura DiCarlo, a startup company run by women, won an innovation award where it was granted the right to be on display at CES. But when they went to do that, they were told no, it was being withdrawn because it wasn't deemed appropriate. Now, this is the same show. The Consumer Electronics Show also had a sex robot on stage last year and had a side room showing virtual porn. But a woman, was not, a woman startup was not allowed to show a vibrator. So yeah, I think we see the same problem with sex robots as well. They are marketed primarily at straight men. They do make male sex dolls for gay men and for women. It's very, very hard to find a woman who will openly talk about only one. There's a couple who have been in documentaries. But this is, the, while the sex toy world is really quite inclusive, the sex robot world, it's a tiny market, it's really, really niche, and it's aimed primarily at heterosexual men. Despite all this worry, and there have been campaigns about banning sex robots, which is weird because we don't even have them really yet, but despite all this worry, there's some hope that they might not ruin sex, they might actually make it better. But I say, not in the current form they won't. We've got to do better than that. I put in this headline, sexual healing, sex robots should be put in all people's homes, says expert. Now, the reason I include that is because they called me an expert, so I was really pleased. <laughs> Well, I didn't quite say that everyone should have a sex robot when they're old. What I said was, we have a thing where we infantilize old people when we put them in care homes, and we refuse to even think that these are people who had sex lives. And they're put into somewhere where they don't have privacy, um, where their needs are, only the basic needs are met, and sex is not. So I think we should rethink how we approach that, not via sex robot, but via technology for intimacy. And I'll show you what I mean. So yeah, can we invent sex robots or sex technology that's really, really inclusive, that fits all sorts of bodies, that meets all sorts of needs? So I ran a sex tech hackathon back in 2016. And then, because it was so successful, I ran another one in 2017. I say I ran it, my students did most of the work. They were brilliant. Um, so yeah, we, we, um, we got a... We got about several hundred people applied to come along to our sex tech hack. And we could only take in about 80 people. So we'd said to people, why do you want to come along? Have you got any ideas? And we selected. And we selected from a very wide range of people. We had, we had the techies. We had the students. We also had psychologists, artists, musicians, industry experts, material scientists, all sorts of people. And we had about, in the end, 50 at each one split up into teams with 24 hours to prototype new forms of sex technology. So this is just a little example of what we were doing. Okay, so the first, the first one we ran in 2016, um, this was the winning prototype called LovePad, and it was soft robotics project. Um, and the idea was that you had a controller, and you had these sort of soft robotic, almost like tentacles, that when you squeezed the controller, it pushed air into them, and they curled around the body. And that meant you could put them anywhere on your body or anyone else's body. Um, and squeeze, and got this sort of intimate and pleasurable feeling. 
So look, I've got a little video of this. It doesn't. It can work on different sizes. I mean, if you tried it on this breast, you would see it would go around this breast, but it could also be on a flat yeah. chest and, and yeah. still be yeah. having exactly because yeah. you feel the yeah. vibration. So it's about trying it's really to soft as well. capture these kind of uh, yeah wow. tactile experiences and share them. And so this this was supposed to all be inside one box. So this is the controller is the, is the breast, you squeeze the breast and it curls. I mean, it's kind of organic and weird looking. It looks a bit like a Cronenberg film, but um, it's just interesting. And they did this in 24 hours. They were like casting it and all of everything in, in, the play, in the venue. One of the ones I really like from this, um, this, is, this is a project called Peacock, um, which I just thought was lovely. And the people who created this, they said, um, It'll keep looping on that GIF unless I change it. Okay. The people who created this um, said, okay, so if, if someone has a penis, you can tell if they're aroused, right? It's really visible. If someone has a vagina, you can't tell externally how aroused they are. So what they did, they got um, a vaginal egg, a little, little egg, and they put moisture sensors on it. And when the moisture sensors were triggered, it opened a big tail, like a peacock's tail. <laughs> and I just thought that was so cool. It was amazing, wasn't it? And I think what I liked about this one was not just that it was a really nice art concept, but the, the ability to extend that into the idea of prosthetics is really, really interesting. So here's a little video of how it works. Oh. <laughs> Muscles, uh, then it makes a, does a little sort of dancing motion. So it's really, really cool. Oh, there we go again. So then the following year, um, we uh, ran it again. And the second time we ran the, the Hackathon, we said, let's focus on the more embodied form. So the idea, take the idea of a sex robot and sort of disrupt it, right? Move away from this reductive stereotype of a woman because I think that's problematic. Let's move it into a new space. So we encourage people to do wearables, immersive experiences, tangible things, to give us an experience of intimacy and, and sensuality as well as sex. Uh, I don't have a video of this one, I can describe it. So this one is, um, I called it a sensuous shawl they called it a sex blanket. So this sex blanket, <laughs> it has lots of sensors on it. And if you wrap it around you and you're in a virtual or augmented reality environment, there can be events that trigger the sensors. So for example, that scene from American Beauty, if you're lying on a bed and rose petals fall from above, you can feel them touching your skin. So there's so many experiences that we can have that are sensuous, intimate, and sexual that don't involve making a human-like robot. And I think that's good because, for starters, we are really, really bad at making human-like robots, right? We, we're just terrible at it. I think we have to move into abstraction. I think we have to move into these more intimate things. I think the future of sex tech lies in this kind of area, not in sex robots. There is no major corporate backing for sex robots. There's like literally a handful of workshops worldwide trying to build women-shaped sex robots, and it's not really reached anywhere. The market is really small and limited. We are much better off if we merge sex toys with robotics and with AI and start integrating those experiences instead. And I also think that sex robots won't replace humans, nor will sex tech. I think it connects us. And already we see smart sex toys being used in sex work, for example, in the cam industry. But we also see it connected. People in long-distance relationships, people who are lonely, people who want to feel human touch. Not even sex, but just touch. And I think there's a really big space out there waiting to be filled with this kind of technology. So this is just a, a final picture. I love this picture because it looks as if I'm about to be like cut open on, a, on a, some kind of autopsy. Um, 
But I, we had a, a group that made a, a hammock out of a sleeping bag, and they had plastic tubes that crossed over the body. And when I flicked the switch on the motor, the tubes inflated and squeezed me like a hug. And I just thought, you know, this is something very, very simple in concept, but it's so much easier to make than a $40,000 sex robot that can't move. So, you know, maybe we should do that. So yes, I wrote a book about it, and I believe there are some copies for sale in the bookstall outside. Um, but really, I mean, what I found after a, a year of research and writing the book was that we are not under threat from sex robots, not at all. We don't even have the evidence that there would be any harm coming from them. It's just completely a new field. And I think that we, we will remain human, we will seek out each other, because that's what we've done for millions of years. But I think that we can enhance that through technology for people who might not have that opportunity. And so I'm a techno-optimist. There are bits that scare me, but I'm a techno-optimist. And I, hopefully the sex tech field will be able to give us new opportunities. Thank you. I'm hoping some people might have some questions. I've got time for some if anyone wants to ask any. Don't be shy. <laughs> this one here. Thank you so much for your input. I was wondering, um, being a techno-skepticist, uh, do you see the potential of sex tech reinforcing gender, gender dynamics, such as, for example, men um, being expecting of women to do most of the emotional labor in relationships, etc.? And um, if so, how can we avoid this? Yeah, I think there is. Um, so about enhancing the gender divide. I think in the, in the current form of sex robots, that's definitely there. And I think even if we look towards the conversational interfaces, so, I mean, I showed the, the picture from the film Her. So everyone in, in Her, it was kind of spun as, this is an operating system, it's neutral, anyone can fall in love with this operating system. But actually, the whole film is about gendered labor, and the operating systems, like the voice assistants we have today, you know, he could have chosen a male one, but like all the, all the conversational AI we have today began as female-voiced. And I think that's really problematic because it's, it's, it's putting the effect of labor, it's putting the, the burden of service on a gendered machine. And so I do think there's a problem with that, um, and which is why I want to move more towards the abstraction as well. I think that's a really valid point. Yeah. Anyone else have got a question? This is... Over here, please. Thank you for very much for that. Um, so my question is, um, so the problem is, is that you, it's so tied up in sex, and that just instantly turns off or makes people go, oh, I don't know, I feel a bit funny about that. So if you were to take this, like, so for example, your, your hackathons, it's still kind of, it's still got that element of sex, and so that turns off so many people. Is there, how do you kind of convince people that it's about intimacy, it's about touch, it's about those things, um, yeah, rather than sex? And that's a really good question because um, I initially started it because I was interested in, in the sex side and I more and more got interested in the, in, in the intimacy side, which I think sex can be part of but isn't always there. Um, and in fact... Uh, one of my friends who, who works in sex tech has said that she wants to see a rebranding as well to call it pleasure tech because she feels that's much more about what it's about and it's not down to this fundamental act of sex because there is that kind of heteronormative assumption that sex involves you know, one penis, one vagina to the point of orgasm, that's it. And I think that's a really reductive way of looking at it because it, it's, it's so much more than that. In fact, when I tried to define it in the book, I was going, well, what, what, you know, how can I even start to say what sex is? And I think I ended up saying, it's that feeling you get when you're aroused and you know, it's the, it's the behavior you, that you partake in when you feel that. But I think intimacy is even broader than that. And, and you know, even something like, could I make a piece of technology that allowed me to hug my child when I'm in a different country? Something like that. I think that's really, really important. So yeah, I think there's a lot of rebranding needs to be done um, around that. And hopefully in future, I'm going to be open it up to much more of that. Yeah. Anyone else? 
Hi, uh, I yesterday also had a talk and mentioned the CES thing and uh, Osei by Laura Di Carlo and my talk, what, what I'm interested in because I was talking about uh, exactly going, taking away this shame thing, normalizing sex uh, in relation to content policy, talking about like what happened with Tumblr yeah. or what happened with others saying, no, that's adult content and that huge umbrella just has so many different topics underneath it and sort of take it uh, sort of rebrand it, take things apart and see how you can turn these moralistic things into more ethical frameworks. And what I have a question to you is, how far do you see that already going along the road? That's a really good question. I'm sorry I wasn't here yesterday to see your talk. Um, I think that there is, right now, there seems to be a, a reactionary wave against sex. I mean, with the Tumblr thing, I think we're seeing a lot of, like, small-c conservative pushback against sex. Um, Foster Sesta in the US, um, Tumblr, um, the age verification absolute fiasco in the UK. This is, this is something that needs to be done. And I think, um, I think Cindy Gallup said something really nice about that, which was that sex tech shouldn't be sex tech, it should just be tech. You know, why are we, why are we having it in its own category? That, and, and I completely agree, we shouldn't be. This should be something that, that is perfectly natural and in our lives. There's another question down here. Could you please stand up so that we can see you there? Perhaps the other microphone? Yes. Okay, okay. now. Great. Um, so uh, it seems that abstracted robots seems to be the way to go simply because of the uncanny value, right? Yeah. They, a human robot looks creepy as hell. Who would want to have sex with that? Exactly. Uh, so as a thought exercise, um, it, how do you think it's going to be if we cross the uncanny valley, if we develop new muscle-like actuators and this kind of stuff, and they actually look and feel like humans? What would happen? Uh, it's an interesting thought exercise. I... The uncanny valley is an interesting thing. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's this idea that the closer something looks to human, but it's not human, the more freaked out we get by it. And I, I mean, there's a, lot, there's, there's a lot of research into it. Is it a constant? Is it something that's cultural? Is it something we learn? And um, I wonder if we'll always get better and better at detecting the, the flaws. So perhaps we'll never reach that point where it's crossed. But then again, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Would, would I want a sex robot that was really, 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 really human? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm stumped. Uh, perhaps it would make a difference. But then if you throw in things like movement and, and voice and interaction, perhaps that would scupper it more. It's interesting. I always, when, when people say, you know, what, what's your vision of a, um, a sex robot for the future? And I always say, what about something like a, a sex duvet? You know, something that you could wrap around you and it hugs you and maybe it vibrates and maybe it purrs and maybe it talks to you. Um, I, I think we, we have got... When we tie ourselves to the idea of building replica humans, we are really missing the boat on, on the design aspects. But yeah, it's a really good question. I'm really stumped. <laughs> um, Anyone else? Sorry, one more, one more. Sorry. I'll be over here. Here. Here, first row. Oh, yeah, oh, hello. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's me again. Um, so it got me thinking, um, have you looked at cyborgs? For example, there are people who, who have yeah. limbs that are, and that could be really interesting because you're not then approaching that kind of, um, that bit where you're like, oh, this is a robot, but it's because it's a human, but they have the ability to do things that you couldn't normally yeah. do. So, for example, yeah, I mean, you could, if you want to go down sort of the, the, the transhuman path, you could have um, implants to enhance your sex life, you know, you have some kind of, you know, genital vibration implant, whatever. You know, I think, yeah, the, the sky is the limit there. Uh, it's, not, it's not an area that I research, so I don't know very much about it, but there's some really cool stuff going on in that and in virtual sex with um, Trudy Barber, who's a researcher from the University of Portsmouth. She's one of the really early... Um, researchers on cyber sex and, and she's writing a book on it at the moment and I'm hoping, and she's also done work on, on transhumanism so I'm hoping that comes into it. One at the end. There's one down here at the end. Where? Ah, I see. <laughs> Hello, thank you for the session. Um, I have one question. What do you think is the potential of incorporating 
data collected from sensory devices that are integrated into those robots because I think there's a, a beautiful intersection between big data sets, between comparing statistical analysis between those data sets and pleasure tech. Yeah, I think there is. And, and the, I, I'm really curious about that. So while I'm very... I'm, wary about what happens to the data. I think it's a really rich source of exploration. And I wonder, I mean, my ultimate aim would be, can we take that data and feed it back in real time into the system? So can we create a, a responsive sex toy that does biofeedback and takes, you know, the, 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 the data I'm feeding it and, and, and furthers what I want from it? But yeah, I think there's some really cool stuff to do. There's been a couple of deep dives into data around sex toy purchase. Um, so it would be interesting to find out more from that. But yeah, whether or not you, how you collect that data <laughs> and how you store it and process it, are, it really remains to be seen. Thanks. <laughs> Just wait a minute. Hey, you raised a question uh, that you didn't answer, and I would really love to know what your opinion is about it, which is uh, with the Pero robot, you see that humans are totally capable of feeling real yeah. emotions and intimacy toward a, uh, an artificial intelligence. And is that okay? Um, I do think it's okay. So we get attached to things all the time. We get attached to people who don't even know we exist. You know, we get crushes on people. I think that we are seeing an emergence of... Um, new social categories. So we're very, very, we are very social creatures. And so we um, interact with our technology socially, anything from, you know, a laptop to a printer. I get angry at my printer when it doesn't print. I blame it for, you know, all of my woes. But I think that we, um, we're also inc incredibly good at knowing what, um, what action and interaction is appropriate in what situation. So in the same way that I adopt my uh, interactions with different social groups, I think that will apply to robots as well. Um, Julie Carpenter has done some really great work on this. Um, she's been looking at how people become attached to robots, certainly in, in the military, um, and the bonds that are built up. And I think it's not a human-human relationship. It's a human-robot relationship. It's different. It's not the same. But I think it's a valid category, and people can have feelings. Yeah. So, are there one or two questions more? Please raise your hands. No. I think that's it. Okay, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Kate.